Before we begin this episode, I want you to know that there is going to be some depictions of violence and abuse. So if that is a particular sensitivity for you, or you have children that are listening, it may be wise to skip this episode. This is Esther, and for five weeks, it is my privilege to share her story with you. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and this is The New Activist, a podcast brought to you by International Justice Mission that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. For this special series, those front lines are in Ghana, in Africa, on the shores of Lake Volta. Today, we begin part two of our series. And parenthetically, if you didn't listen to part one, I would go back and start there. Everything will make much more sense. But where we left our main character, our friend Esther, she was taken from her home to work on an island. And there was a lot of confusion about if her parents knew or if they didn't know. But what we know is that there was a child somewhere between four and six years old who was taken to work on an island in the middle of Lake Volta. And it's not an island like you think of, like a lovely place. It is, it is dark and it is full of woods and it does not have running water. It is a difficult place for any human to survive in. Today, we will hear of her life, if you can call it that, and what it was like working in this fishing industry as a slave. To begin to set the context for the jobs that she had to do on the lake, here's Esther and her caseworker who's translating for her, Perpetual. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, I sweep, fetch water for household use, and then um, I go on the lake. At the time that there were not enough boys, I go on the lake to do fishing. Um, but when they had more boys, I don't go on the lake anymore. But I stay back at home, and my duty is to smoke the, process the fish and smoke it. And then we package it for market. We go to the market to sell. Sometimes in the evenings, we go to harvest firewood, which we'll be using to smoke the fish the next day. Did it ever um, hurt your eyes or your hands to do that kind of hard work? Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. So I got uh, hit by the bones of the fish. She got hurt by the bones of the fish. One thing I learned in spending a lot of time with Esther is that she is quite understated, both about her suffering and about her life. And she says a lot of what she says without using words. And I will tell you that sitting next to her, I saw scars all over her hands and her arms. And it was very clear immediately, even to someone with an untrained eye, that she had suffered. To shed some more light on that suffering and her life on the island, I spent time with Just Perpetual to get some of the more difficult details. Can you take me through a, a, her day in the life of what it means to be uh, fishing as a 
young child on Lake Volta. And they set out very early, um, by 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. Um, on the lake. Their task normally would be either casting the nets, where they throw the nets into the lake and then fix things to be able to trap the fish. Um, they help in sorting the fish out because they have various uh, varieties. And so they would have to sort them out to whatever species that they, they are able to get. Those are the things. And then for some of them would also dive um, uh, into the lake uh, so that they help to untangle nets that are caught up by tree stumps that are in the lake. So basically that's their role um, on the lake. They do that sometimes up to about 10.30 a.m., 11 a.m. And then they'll have a short break. Once they get to shore, they'll break for a while and then go back around 1 p.m., uh, sometimes to about 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., depending on the master that uh, you work with. These are long days Very for long. anyone, but Very especially for children. Yeah, sure. Did Esther ever share with you during the time when she was fishing how she felt during those days? Because she's both left her home and now she's in doing some pretty severe labor. What, what were her, what, what do you know of how she felt during that time? Okay, so the time that she used to go on the lake, uh, if I remember what she told me was that um, initially it was very scary for her because she didn't even know how to swim at the time she got there. Uh, but she has to be on the lake. Just to be very clear, Perpetual just said that Esther didn't know how to swim while she was working on the lake. Let that reality sink in. The other difficulty that she expressed at that time was that apart from doing the uh, fishing itself, when she comes back, she helps in the processing and smoking as well, which means that she would have pretty longer day than the other boys that were there because the boys were not engaged in the smoking. So she would go on the lake, do everything, come back, and then at the same time help to smoke again. Um, so uh, one word that she would always use to describe it is that it's very difficult uh, work to do, yeah. It sounds like in the course of a day, it's pretty dangerous from untangling nets to filleting fish um, to stoking a fire to grilling. These are all things that children would not typically be able to do. And so my guess is that it's pretty dangerous. Can you talk about the dangers of a child living in that environment? Yeah, so it's very dangerous a work for um, children her age to be engaged in. This is even more so because some of the times they do this without any supervision. And so whatever is happening to any of them, any accidents coming up along the line is not immediately identified and attended to. Um, most of the masters or the madams that they work with, they are just kind of like the bosses. So they sit somewhere comfortable allowing the children to do all the uh, hazardous work that goes with it. Um, there are times that she talks about the heat that emanates from the fire and how she feels that was dangerous. Even being a child, she's able to tell that that was dangerous. Um, she, she spoke about the fact that even when she's uh, tired or she doesn't feel good, it's not something she would talk about because if she does, they, nobody would even bother um, taking care of her health concerns. So she rather keeps it to herself. Um, she talked about times where she had to go and carry the fish and because of the load, the, the heavy nature of the load, she kind of passed out and fell with the fish. Even on top of that, she was beaten because they felt that she intentionally, you know, 
chew the fish on the on the, on the floor. And so it's it's it's, it's pretty dangerous um, uh, work for any child her age. Perpetual went on to say that the children often look younger than their age because their physical growth has been stunted by both malnutrition and intense labor. We then shifted our conversation and I asked her about the people who held her captive. I wanted to know what she knew and what specifically she was at liberty to share. The boatmaster, uh, understanding, is also a chief. He's a chief of that community. It's an island community. So he lives there, he lives on the island with the wife, uh, the brothers, and then the brothers and their wives, uh, with their, some of their biological children, and then um, mostly slave boys and girls who, who, who work for them. How does, um, I'm thinking through, again, the state of mind of someone that is able to own children and beat children and I'm trying to understand it um, and so I guess the first question is do they know what they're doing is illegal they should know because there are laws um, in the country uh, we have laws clear laws on uh, some of the things that they were doing and the law is so specific on what to do, what is allowable and what is not allowable. And there's a saying that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So even if they don't have the content of the law, they can't say they don't know because at least there's been talks, there's been education as to the need for all children basically to be in school, for example. And so that one, they can't say they don't know about it. Yes. Then what possible justification can they make that owning children and forcing them to work is okay? So normally what they would tell you is that it's a treat. They want to teach them a treat or a vocation because their parents handed that tradition um, of fishing to them. And, and that is how they also learned it. They joined their parents when they were four, five, six years and, and learned the, the trade over time. And now they've become masters. So if um, other children are coming up, they also need to pass on that profession to them by engaging them from a very tender age until uh, they also go to become masters. Uh, personally, I, I feel it's just an excuse um, to kind of uh, go scot-free or kind of, yeah. What do you feel the real reason is then? If it's an excuse, yeah. what do you feel their motivations are? So I feel the child, uh, using children is less expensive. Um, and then the other thing is that it's easier for children to learn faster. If, it, if they are old, older, it's difficult for them to get some of the concepts when it comes to the efficient work. So they would rather prefer the younger ones who will not have any memory of where they are coming from, stay longer and do, rather than taking the older ones who are already grown, have formed their own uh, uh, mental um, uh, mindsets about things, they can run away at any time, for example, so it's, it's just for cheap labor, if, if you ask me. It's for cheap labor, yeah. You know, this question continues to nag me, this question of, are the people that own children evil people? Because everything in me, if we're being honest with each other, which I am, says that it is pure evil. But at the same time, just like the conversation we had last week about the parents, this is nuanced and it's complex. And so to get 
more of an opinion on this, I did speak again with Anita Boudou. We spoke with her yesterday. She is the director of casework in Ghana and incredibly wise. I think for me, um, what I just see are individuals who are taking advantage of a situation. And so what I think of these boys masters are that they are wanting to make as much money as possible. Um, and so they would use whatever means it's, it takes to be able to get there. And because this is something that has gone on and on in their uh, communities, they don't really think twice about it. They just think if I use a child, I don't have to pay them. Um, I can control them easily. They are not going to be demanding. And actually we've seen um, from some of our children who were rescued at an earlier, at, at a later age, let's say when, when they're later teens, they talk about starting to rebel against their masters and able to, to say that, no, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to work for this long. And that causes a challenge yeah. for the masters. That is at the point where they are thinking, okay, I don't want to use you anymore. But when they are younger, they're not really going to be um, questioning what the boat master says. And so it just makes it easier um, for them, they don't have to pay them. Someone who's older and wiser, I would say, would be demanding for fair um, payment. And so I would, I, I would describe them as opportunists who see a, situ a situation of vulnerability and use it to their advantage, really just thinking of um, making money um, out of a situation. And um, I think there's kind of a separation. They don't quite see these children as children. Um, some way, somehow, they're able to really separate these children from, I would say, their own biological children because they treat them quite differently. Um, often when you go deep into these situations, you'd see that the boat masters, their children may also help, but they help for short hours. After that, they go to school, they come back, they are bought clothing, they are well taken care of. Um, but these other children are really seen, the only way I can describe it is that only seen as machines and they're often told your only purpose on this earth really is to work and do this um, for me. So somehow they're able to make this demarcation and only see this kids as a means to an end, basically. Can you take me deeper inside how someone can view a child as a machine? I think as, uh, I, I will take it as um, very, maybe on a broader or bigger picture scale. Yeah. yeah. As human beings, I think it can be very easy to dehumanize someone and to segregate them when you feel that you're in a different situation or when you feel that um, this could never happen to me, I'm well protected. Um, so I would say that people who feel that they are privileged or well off or have certain advantages in life and are sitting quite comfortably can easily separate themselves from someone else and feel like I'm in this bracket and you are in this bracket and this is kind of your lot this is what you are meant um, to be. And I would say, this to, to me, this is a scenario all across the world in different forms and types of slavery, whether it's historically or in modern day slavery. And so I would say, sadly, as human beings, there's always that tendency or that possibility um, to completely cut someone off and think that this is what happens to this um, kind of people, whether it's because of race, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's because of social standing, um, human beings um, can have that because 
unfortunately human beings are just selfish um, in nature and our sin nature and to me this is where um, Christianity and faith really plays a, a, a big part because if you don't um, see or truly see actually um, the value that God places in every single human being and that each person on this earth is made in God's image then um, it's very easy to just treat, treat people as dead and nothing really. That is incredibly helpful perspective from Anita. People are not seen as human. They are seen as machines and they are not viewed in the image of God. They are purely property. Hard perspective, but helpful as we consider how the people that held Esther were possibly able to do that. For another opinion on this, as well as some other things, we are going to turn to Bishop Hilliard. Reverend Hilliard is the presiding bishop of the West African Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which is a heck of a title and I barely got through it. But what it means is that he has spent a lot of time and spends a lot of time all over Ghana. And I'm going to pose the same question to the bishop that I posed to Anita about the nature of the people that can hold other people in captivity. And then the conversation will continue from there. You know, yes, yeah, some people, you know, humans as we are, yes. we cannot say that everybody has a kind and a genuine heart towards fellow human beings. I mean, some people just out of sheer wickedness will do whatever they want to do. But I still believe that a bulk of the people even in doing so, they are doing it out of ignorance. I have a basic you know, principle I've always shared that people, you know, love is so beautiful. Love is just so beautiful that if anybody is able to appreciate the beauty of love, hate will not be part of your vocabulary or your lifestyle. And for anybody to have hatred and wickedness and evil towards fellow human beings as part of the person's lifestyle or, 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 or being, it simply means that the person does not know what love is. And how can you teach somebody love? You show them love. So for me, even these people, you know, I don't go to them engaging them with fire and brimstone. I go to them engaging them for the point of showing them love, trying to understand, helping them know that, look, I know what you're going through. I know you're also trying to do this in the name of survival. Are you being fair to this child? who you are depriving of his or her well-being? Are you being fair to this child whose, whose education you've, you, you've curtailed? Are you being fair to this child whose parents trusted you? Are you being fair? So coming from that point of view, you know, I, I, I believe that for me, to a large extent, it's always worked. Because you go into the community, you arrest them, you put them into jail, they come back. All they know to do in that community is use people to work. Right. And in loving them, and love. in loving them, they are able to love, guys, <laughs> right? Right. This is Christ's love. This yeah. is the thread that flows that's through right. and out of us. Well, so that's his answer. And it's a hard answer to internalize, especially as we sit with a child who is working on the island. But to him, and from where his belief system takes him, the real answer is not if they are or are not evil, but the real answer is, are they deserving of love? Are they still one of God's children, even if they have done terrible things? I am still thinking about that. Our conversation continued with another topic that has sort of been the elephant in the room because 
the current story of slavery in Ghana cannot be divorced from the history of slavery that has been perpetuated upon Ghana. And so I am sitting here in an American studio, in an American context, talking about slavery in another country, when in fact my own country has a lot of reconciling to do. I asked Bishop Hilliard about that. I was reading a recent piece of literature that said at least 10%, if not more, of the slaves that were brought to the West were from the region that you are the bishop over. I'm, I'm curious primarily first, like, what does that do to a culture to have that as part of their fairly recent history? You know, it's, a, it's always a mixed feeling. You know, I've always been encouraging my congregation about uh, uh, local tourism. Uh, where they should organize trips to the safe castle just to uh, learn the history of slavery. I can tell you that there are many people in this country that do not know the history of slavery. How does a lack of knowing hurt them, and how does knowing about this history help them? I think knowing about this history helps to the extent that it helps you to recognize that, look, what has happened in the past in a different way that has affected many people negatively and to a large extent destroyed their, 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 their sense of identity and uh, 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 all of its related issues can still happen again. Yes. You know, so that it's imperative that we realize that, you know, yes, people were bound in chains and taken out of their country. I mean, if you keep a child at home, even without being in chains, but a child you know, does not have the freedom of mobility, the freedom of choice, and the freedom of, uh, of you know, the basic human rights to able to exhibit that. I mean, that's slavery. You know, and until you help people to appreciate what happened in the past and its relationship to what is happening today, whatever happened in the past will still be seen in abstract terms. I want to hear more about that a little bit, because how do you reconcile kind of a, a, a people who were so deeply affected and their history was so deeply affected by slavery, who also are now perpetuating that slavery upon themselves? And this is not just clearly a Ghanaian problem. This is all over the planet. But speaking to an authority and the Ghanaian culture, like how does your mind reconcile the fact that there's such a brutal history of slavery, yet at the same time it continues, but not necessarily because of outside influence? I mean, slavery in the past, I mean, was also, <laughs> it's also happened because of internal influences. Yes. I mean, when the slave masters came to buy the slaves, they didn't force anybody to sell the slaves. People voluntarily sold the slaves. Tell me more about that, because right? I think a lot of people don't. People yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, it is said that uh, people who were uh, being recalcitrant, who were stubborn and uh, uh, disobedient, were the ones who were sold to slavery. Right. You know, so, uh, I mean, the slave masters came all right. They came in the name of, uh, and we need not to ignore the fact that economics had a, lo a role to play in all of this. Yes. Economic, economics has to play, had a role to play in it then, and economics has a role to play in it today. Can I ask you to unpack that and under help us understand that? Now, people who sold slaves in the past, 
They didn't sell slaves for selling sake. They sold slaves so they could make some money for living. People on the Volta Lake who are using child labor, they are using child labor to make some money. So if you, if, and for them, some, the labor force that they need, they cannot afford to pay the labor force with a kind of income that they hope to generate from that business. I mean, if you hear some of what the amount of money that they had to pay to certain families for them to release their children, you wonder how in the world could somebody give a child away because of that amount of money, yeah. but because they just needed something to survive on. Some people also do not voluntarily just sell the child. Maybe they've gone into debt as a result of a business transaction. Okay, well, you let your child slave for it to pay off the debt. It's no different from what happened in the past. Well, I am grateful to both Bishop Hilliard and to Anita for giving us a lot to think about as we consider Esther's story. And I want to bring us back to her because we've taken a moment and we've zoomed way out and looked at the history of slavery in Ghana and the Ghana and American slave trade, as well as perspective on the captors. But it is important that even as we chew on these ideas that we remember Esther, because where we left her, she is working on an island, smoking fish all day, every day, doing incredibly hard work for nearly a decade. Esther, as we've come to learn, is quite understated and didn't have a lot to say about her time on the island, and who can blame her? Who would want to go through and relive that? But she did say this. Did you, uh, when you were there, did you want to, um, did you want to leave there? Yes. yes. Can you tell me why you wanted to leave there? My master's son used to beat me. I'm sorry, that must have been very scary. So, did you think you would ever get to leave that place? No. 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 That's all she had to say, and she wanted to move on. When asked if she ever thought she'd leave, she simply said no. In the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her abuse, she thought this was her life, and that she could never be free. But what Esther could not have known was that there were events that were transpiring behind the scenes that would soon change the trajectory of her entire life. When did IJM first hear about Esther and the other children that were on that island. Okay, so... Um, Once again, this is perpetual. IJM Ghana, to be specific, we know that children, there are a number of children that are trapped on the lake uh, that are doing uh, hazardous work. Um, it came out that there were some two children somewhere around um, that area. Um, they've completed every investigative work, and so the team needed to move in and do a rescue of those boys. And then it was at that point that uh, one of the uh, police investigators uh, mentioned that they had a case that they have investigated over time and have confirmed um, that there was a boy, um, Geoffrey, 
who uh, was trafficked to that area. On the next episode of The New Activist, Jeffrey's story, his bravery, and what that has to do with Esther. The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. And really, this podcast exists and this story exists because of International Justice Mission. My hope is that as you are moved by the story of Esther, you would be compelled to leverage your life, to give money, to give time, to use your voice. To do all of those things, go to ijm.org forward slash rescue children. And there's a dash between rescue and children, rescue dash children, because that's what we can do. On behalf of my colleagues at IJM, as well as Esther, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. I've been sincere, yeah.